Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. I'm John Quinn Hill. Today, we'll try to answer the question, can we use policy to actually end housing discrimination? And when I say that, I mean the policies that keep American neighborhoods pretty homogenous. Even as the country becomes more and more diverse, most white people are still likely to live in a predominantly white neighborhood. In fact, neighborhoods were more segregated in 2019 than they were in 1990. When you stop and think about it, where we live determines a lot about us. It can dictate how long our commute is, our preferred coffee shop, our friend circle. But it's also a factor in more serious outcomes too, like the quality of our education or our health. The United States has a long and, frankly, troubling history when it comes to discriminatory housing practices. The impact of practices like redlining are still evident in cities like Chicago. And the Department of Housing and Urban Development didn't officially extend protections to LGBTQ people until 2021. The thing is, there's supposed to be a solution to all of this. In 1968, the Fair Housing Act was passed to directly address things like this. But Enforcement has been weak, and attempts to strengthen it have hit roadblocks. But now, the White House is stepping in. Earlier this month, the Biden administration took aim with a proposal to strengthen the Fair Housing Act. Rachel Cohen is a senior policy reporter here at Vox, and she says this move is noteworthy. So this new move is very important. It's sort of part of what Biden has said as part of his larger goal to fully implement the Fair Housing Act. And it's largely considered necessary if the government is serious about actually enforcing the Fair Housing Act and desegregating housing. The Fair Housing Act is one of the many pieces of civil rights legislation that was passed in the 1960s. Basically, it's the big federal civil rights law to prevent housing discrimination in rental housing, in homes that people own, in mortgages, in housing assistance, sort of all housing-related activities. And in addition to sort of banning discrimination, another key part of it is this idea about sort of furthering fair housing and desegregating communities. And that's what this rule is kind of meant to address. It passed 55 years ago in 1968. Now with this bill... The voice of justice speaks again. It proclaims that fair housing for all, all human beings who live in this country, is now a part of the American way of life. It was actually passed exactly one week after Martin Luther King was assassinated. Congress had tried for a couple of years in the 60s to get it through, and basically in the wake of that murder, Lyndon Johnson pressed on Congress to pass it in part in his honor because Martin Luther King talked a lot about fair housing in his trips around the country. Let's go back in time a little to before the Fair Housing Act. What did those discriminatory housing policies look like? You know, they really ran the gamut. You know, on the local level, you might have neighbors come together and press their city council or their, you know, local homeowner association to pass requirements for entry 
in your community that certain people couldn't meet. This is how, you know, lots of Blacks and Jews were were just sort of discriminated by local ordinance that they couldn't get a mortgage in that community. You also had banks and real estate agents (laughs) being very active in the segregation process, either, you know, giving really expensive mortgages in low-income communities or overpricing mortgages in other communities that they would otherwise be able to afford. You had real estate agents who would basically do these blockbusting things where people would all sell their houses immediately if they thought someone Black was moving in, and immediately people would rush out. The federal government also highly subsidized people to leave cities and move to suburbs that were also exclusionary. So they there was sort of a whole host of ways in which local, state, and federal government kind of facilitated exclusionary practices. Zoning is a big one. It continues to be a big one, although not as overt as we had uh, 70 years ago. And it's honestly kind of shocking to go back and and read some of the quotes that people just openly said about who they wanted as neighbors, what they would do to, to keep it that way. We still have so much housing segregation today, but people go about it in, in slightly more like, what's the word? Like, like Almost like covert. Yeah, covert ways. Exactly. This is very interesting because, um, I don't know, I just grew up hearing stories from my mom. And she grew up in a suburb of Seattle, and they were the first black family to move oh, wow. in there. And it was the 1950s. Wow. And the only reason they got that house was because um, the woman who sold it to them, like my grandma was part of this, like, I don't know. There was, like, this Christian women's organization. And she was like, oh, I just adore that house. And the woman who lived in it was like, oh, we're selling it. I will sell it to you. And, like, sold it to her directly. And the neighbors were— the neighbors were not happy. Like, the the seller just bypassed the discriminatory real estate agent. <laughs> yeah, and just went directly. And wow. then, but the neighbors were uh, not, not happy. It was with that. not a, for the first few years, it was not a great situation. Um, what has the enforcement of the Fair Housing Act been like through the years? Have, has it been enforced? Some parts of the law have. There are certain protected classes under the Fair Housing Act, like race and national origin and religion and sex and disability. And so, you know, if you are someone with a disability and you feel like a landlord didn't rent to you, you can get a lawyer and take them to court under the Fair Housing Act. But this part of the Fair Housing Act about furthering fair housing and desegregating, that's been far less enforced for basically the entire time it's been in place, it's not surprising that, like, I'm sure you would agree housing is still very oh, yeah. segregated. And, and landlords and homeowners, you know, people basically feel like they can pursue segregated housing with relative impunity in a way that I think at least people know they, if they do openly discriminate, they might get in trouble. We know <laughs> that this hasn't always been enforced, but what are some examples of the government intervening? Like, how can the government intervene when it comes to fair housing? One of the things that civil rights advocates have basically been pressing since its inception is saying, like, the federal government gives out billions of dollars in grants to communities all over the country every year. You know, the most obvious and probably the most effective lever would be to say, like, well, we're not going to give you funding if you continue to allow this to happen in your communities. If you don't crack down, like, you need to figure this out or or we're going to, like, take this away from you. When the Fair Housing Act was first passed, the first person to really, like, appoint people to implement it was Richard Nixon. And his first HUD secretary was actually George Romney, Mitt Romney's dad and the former governor of Michigan. And George Romney actually did sort of instruct his agency to withhold federal funding from communities that were not taking seriously this piece about desegregating. And then there was like a backlash and Richard Nixon reeled him in. And basically no one since then has kind of been willing to be that aggressive. So it kind of like started this long trajectory of mealy enforcement after Richard Nixon kind of roped George Romney back in. Basically, the whole hope with this rule is that communities would certify to the federal government, here's what we're going to do to do fair housing to reinvest in, in segregated communities and help people move to less segregated communities. And then HUD would read these plans and figure out if they seem serious or meaningful, if, if it's actually backed up with real action. And ideally, they would then consider, you know, withholding funds from communities that either submit weak plans or don't follow through on their plans. 
What impact has this had on housing segregation? Because, I mean, I think I think it's safe to say that it's not as bad as it was in the 60s, but also that's a bar that's, like, literally on the ground. <laughs> so how has that changed through the years? I don't think it's overstating to say that this has very little effect on, you know, moving the needle much on desegregation. And I think people are rightfully frustrated. People rightfully look at this law and think it hasn't done what it's meant to do, what it says it's going to do. There was a national commission in 2008 that was sort of this independent commission sponsored by the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights, and it was co-chaired by former HUD secretaries, two former HUD secretaries, and they sort of went around the country to kind of learn how fair housing was being implemented. And the conclusion of this commission in 2008 was like, this is not being enforced, that nothing is happening, like no communities feel the threat of retribution from HUD. And that conclusion was echoed by subsequent federal reports, like a 2010 government accountability report basically said the same thing. So this problem has been known and documented in like many ways for a long time. And it's been really frustrating. It sounds like the number one way to, I guess, for lack of a better term, punish communities for not complying with this is to take away that HUD funding. And How important is that HUD funding? Like, is this this a vital resource for cities and towns in these places? It's a hugely vital resource. It funds a lot of economic development, homelessness assistance, some environmental stuff. There's so much sort of community economic development that HUD funds. A lot of nonprofit social services rely on HUD grants. So it would be a very big yeah, it's it's very interesting how people will not integrate voluntarily. You kind of you have to take people kicking and screaming um, <laughs> into integration. I'm I'm wondering, is there a reason that this particular legislation has been less successful in being implemented? A couple weeks ago, we talked to Atiba Ellis about the Voting Rights Act. And he said that the VRA has been called one of the most successful pieces of civil rights legislation in the history of the country. I don't think anyone would give the FHA that title. Why is it that this particular piece of civil rights legislation lacks teeth? We do know, at least for the desegregation part of the Fair Housing Act, the problem was that while under the law— Communities had to certify it, you know, that they were taking steps. There was no real follow-through by HUD or by the federal government to make sure that they were actually doing what they were saying they were going to do, as opposed to the parts of the Fair Housing Act around housing discrimination where you do see lawsuits all the time and lawsuits that go up to the Supreme Court. And I'm not really sure why you see such a discrepancy. And like, I can kind of guess maybe some of it has to do with politics and in a way that the voting rights has not. But I think it also has to do with like this really, really strong culture that we have around housing as being a local issue and for local communities. So there's always been kind of a a hesitancy of how much the federal government can get involved in housing. And I think that overlays how much the Federal Fair Housing Act gets enforced. So... We know what the Fair Housing Act was supposed to do. Next, we'll look at the policy that some hope will actually make it happen. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. 
They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hey, this is The Weeds. I'm John Glenn Hill. And we're talking with Vox senior policy reporter Rachel Cohen about the latest proposed change in the Fair Housing Act. But before we get to the new rule, we need to talk about what happened in 2015. So in 2015, there had been all this pressure on the federal government to do something. We just talked about these reports that were calling on the federal government to take action. So honestly, Obama didn't really rush. It was in the end of his second term. But finally, his HUD agency put out its own rule called the Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing Rule. And it was a it was a big deal at the time. It was really considered this long-awaited victory for civil rights. And it was basically requiring all recipients of HUD funding, which is virtually all communities across the country, to make these plans and submit these plans about how they were going to further fair housing and and do this aspects of desegregation and reinvesting in in segregated communities. There were lots of critiques of this policy at the time from the right and from the left. What were some of those critiques? I would definitely say the backlash was much more heavily on the right, but it got politicized really, really quickly. You had conservative writers and pundits coming out saying, like, this is a socialist experiment. This is a radical intrusion by the federal government into housing. (laughs) Donald Trump famously said he was going to abolish the suburbs. The Democrats in D.C. have been and want to, at a much higher level, abolish our beautiful and successful suburbs by placing far-left Washington bureaucrats in charge of local zoning decisions. Suburbia will be no longer as we know it. And, uh, you know, Ben Carson, who had not yet been tapped to be HUD secretary, was railing about it in in right-wing media. So it, it kind of became very, very quickly a huge campaign issue for the 2016 election. And conservatives just cast it as, like, government overreach, you know, really, really sort of big government coming into your housing and, and trying to destroy your way of life. On the left, I would say... There wasn't like a big backlash from liberal groups, but there were definitely some civil rights groups and some liberal groups that felt like it wasn't going to be, didn't go far enough, that it wasn't going to hold the fire to these communities' feet that needed to be done, especially on the desegregation piece of it. It wasn't around long enough for, I would say, people who had more hopes for it. And just on the other point on the suburbs, like something that drives me so crazy about all that too is like, When people are talking about the suburbs, you know so many of them are still picturing, like, leave it to Beaver, white picket fence, lily white community, even though today suburbs are so diverse and there are still some very segregated white enclaves. But, like, you know when Trump is talking about destroying the suburbs, he's not thinking of what so many of our suburbs in America actually look like, which are 
multiracial, multi-ethnic, low-income suburb. Like, it's just, you know, that's not what, what he's talking about. Yeah. I mean, you and I both live in D.C., and I know it has the reputation of Chocolate City. It is not nearly as chocolate as it used to be because a lot of Black people who have been in the city and been there for generations are like, I can't afford to live here anymore. So, you know, you head out right. to... Prince George's. Yeah, you head out to Prince George's County. Like, the suburbs look like Bowie, Maryland. And right. it's a lot of it is affluent, but right. it's not that leave it to Beaver. Or I think of Montgomery County. Like, I have friends that are starting that to have families. That is a more of like a... I feel like the... Oh, yeah. Trump is probably oh, Chevy Chase. He's, he's, you know? de- he's definitely thinking <laughs> yeah, Chevy Chase exactly. and not like Hyattsville. Right, exactly. But even in some Montgomery County communities, I know, like, totally. it's a it's a mix. Like, I have friends who have kids out there and it's black, brown, and white. Like, it does not look the way that people are imagining the suburbs to look. Exactly. When Trump was elected he rolled back a lot of Obama-era policies, and and this was one of them. I'm glad you mentioned that abolish the suburbs thing. I, I, it, it, I remember it, and it was such a touch point in 2016. I feel like ever since 2016, I've heard, all I've heard is about suburban voters, the suburbs, the suburbs, the suburbs. And this obviously was a factor in that. When Trump rolled this back, did it make an actual difference? Or or was this policy just not enacted long enough for to know either way? What the Trump administration did when they first came in was they didn't strike it down outright at the start. They just sort of delayed it indefinitely. And, and civil rights groups, a coalition of them, filed a lawsuit saying, you know, this delay effectively amounts to suspending it. And this is a abnegation of your responsibilities. You're supposed to be responsible for overseeing billions of dollars in federal funding by suspending or delaying this rule. You're failing your duty. So that was kind of winding through the courts. But then really quickly, like the Trump administration uh, said, okay, 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 we'll 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 put it back. We'll resume it. But we're going to take out this assessment tool that was part of it. And it was really hard to like explain it at the time, but the assessment tool was considered really, really important to giving teeth to this rule, even though this rule was supposed to give teeth to the Fair Housing Act. <laughs> um, so basically, the Trump administration scrapped this tool so the rule could go forward. And the civil rights groups, you know, they sued again. And they said, no, 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 this is the same thing. You're hobbling this whole rule. It won't work without it. But a judge, the federal judge in 2018 was like, no, they're allowed to take out, you know, it's in their authority to decide if they want certain tools for their rules or whatever. So she basically sided with the Trump administration on this and civil rights groups lost. The rule was now like in effect, but ineffectual. And then in 2020, Trump administration released their own version of the rule, which was, you know, very hollow, very weak, blasted as being stepped backwards. So it was all sort of dead in the water. And when Biden ran for president, he pledged to sort of take action on this. And when he was elected, he said he was going to take away Trump's rule and issue their own one. So that's what we basically saw this month. So it sounds like sort of what the Trump administration did. It's like it's like saying like, OK, you have to take a calculus test in order to do this. However, you cannot have a calculator. Yeah, exactly. Like uh, you, uh, do luck. the work by hand and do your best is what it kind of sounds like. One of the big changes between Biden's rule and Obama's rule, which I think we'll talk about more later, is that they decided not to include like a separate tool that's necessary to make it work. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. But clearly they were thinking about how the Obama rule got dismantled. And, you know, to some extent, I think they're trying to figure out how can we design something that might be able to avoid that in the future if it comes under threat. Yeah, I want to I want to talk about this new rule from Biden because that's, you know, why we're here talking about this. What does it do? When Biden was elected, he tasked his HUD agency to have listening sessions with stakeholders all over the country to kind of collect feedback. They're describing it as we're building on Obama's rule, but we're making some key improvements based on all that feedback. We think this rule is going to be more effective. Um, we think this rule is going to allow for more public transparency. One one difference is that 
Now, in addition to sort of submitting these plans, communities also have to submit annual updates that go online. Anyone in the community can see them. And, you know, if you live in your town and you think your local government is not following through on what they said they were going to do, now you as an individual can file a complaint with HUD, which is something that exists for other civil rights laws, but it never was sort of a mechanism that they had for this part of the Fair Housing Act. So now, like, you could file a complaint, which might spark an investigation from HUD to then look into that community. So they they wanted to sort of come up with ways that were both make it more transparent for the public and give the public more ways to sort of do some enforcement themselves. So that's like one of the things. There's some other changes, like they say they're trying to simplify the rule compared to Obama's. They, they're they saying, you know, require less sophisticated data analysis that might require hiring fewer consultants and, and things like that. And, and they wanted to expand like the amount of public feedback you have to get for the plan. So now there's more requirements on how many community meetings at what parts of the day and where in what locations like trying to make you not just get the same like seniors who own their homes and don't work and yeah, have people the, who have <laughs> the people time. who have the time <laughs> exactly so that's kind of the the rule that as they introduce it which is the premise is the same the premise is like we are going to require communities to they're calling them equity plans in this new version they're going to require communities to submit their equity plans for approval and then if they're approved, they have to sort of show progress every year in order to do it. And the idea is you have to do it every five years. There's 60 days to for for people to weigh in and give public comments. So it's not the final rule, but the idea is that there would be a final rule later this year. So we have this Biden administration rule. It's in its proposal stage. And, you know, it's similar to the Obama administration's version of this rule. It's different in some ways. What criticisms has this rule faced? Kind of the main ones that I've seen come up so far, you know, there are some people who feel like HUD should be, you know, fair housing is kind of a, there's not a clear consensus on what fair housing really means. People have different definitions. Yeah, yeah, that's (laughs) kind of... uh, (laughs) And that creates problems. And so there are people who think, you know, if you make this so open-ended, if you don't clearly say what exactly, what are the outcomes you want to see, then it's going to be too easy to basically do nothing or do a little bit or or not get around. And, and so HUD, you know, there are people who want HUD to be much more prescriptive about what kind of desegregatory or housing discrimination outcomes they, you know, want to see. The sympathetic argument to HUD is that the Obama-era rule was basically destroyed once things got so politicized. So HUD is trying really, really hard in this moment to say, we're not forcing you to do anything. This is up to local communities to come up with their plans. There is this federal law. We need to enforce that. But like, we're not telling you what to do. And they're definitely doing that in part because they're trying to avoid the same kind of backlash that we saw for Obama's rule. And the other thing that I guess HUD would say is, although they might not say this like explicitly, but this is in their thinking, um, there was a Supreme Court case in 2015. It was a fair housing case. It was called like Texas versus Inclusive Communities. And it was actually a win for civil rights and fair housing, which was sort of surprising to some. Anthony Kennedy was the judge who wrote the opinion. And basically, that case affirmed that you could bring these disparate impact claims under the Fair Housing Act. But they kind of also basically said in their opinion, it was strongly suggested that while they think these cases can proceed, the federal government should not be too prescriptive on local communities and that local communities can, you know, pursue the goals of the Fair Housing Act either with desegregation and mobility strategies or reinvestment in segregated communities and It's not super clear where the line is, but there is this sense that, like, okay, the Supreme Court is only more conservative since 2015. So I think HUD is trying to craft a rule that could make a difference but not get knocked down in court and not spark a huge political backlash. And, like, that's all very hard. And I think one can rightfully be like, is that going to have an effect? And the thing is, I understand not wanting to be prescriptive because every community is different. Because if you're living in rural Texas, it's your community and what 
inclusivity and diversity looks like is going to look different than if you're in Ward 1 D.C. or if you're, you know, in a mid-sized city in the Midwest. Like, it's just, it's all going to be so different. I mean, I think it's fairly obvious that I am on the side of desegregation. Um, I do understand how being prescriptive could end in in not the result people are actually seeking. Yeah, some people are like, progress for Ward 1 in five years might look like progress for X community in 15 years, and how do you get there? But the other big criticism that I, I think is at a real risk, if you're a city like New York City or Los Angeles or, or any of these big cities that get these what are called community development block grants from HUD, you're directly subject to the this rule. There are some smaller communities around the country that don't get HUD funding directly like that, but they get housing funding that has gone to state housing agencies. Under this rule, all state agencies are also subject to it, so they have to submit their own things. But now you are basically going to have this situation where, like, do we think the Texas Housing Agency is going to monitor some of these rural conservative Texas towns to make sure they're following through? They're supposed to under the rule. That's like, they're obligated to it's kind of this big just open question of like, how is that going to work politically? Are are we going to get the kind of cooperation for this that we need? And how much is HUD willing to like poke the bear and like upset Texas lawmakers and like risk, you know, a 2024 campaign mm. issue? I'm glad you brought that up. And I'm also glad you talked about lawsuits a little bit earlier. If this rule goes into effect slash when this rule goes into effect, Are we likely to see lawsuits challenging it? I mean, I think of the way that the courts have really shaped so much civil rights legislation through the years. Are we about to see that with the Fair Housing Act? I think it's very likely we'll see some, but I think it's unclear now kind of how much and what degree. Like, things got so politicized in 2015, and If that happens again, then I think we'll definitely see another deja vu. I think the hope that HUD and fair housing advocates hope is that we can just kind of like get this in place, get the, you know, process moving. And if it's working out for well for a couple of years, then maybe no one's going to like just like freak out. Mm. That might be a naive hope. Uh, (laughs) But I think the one thing I will say is like the Fair Housing Act has been around for 55 years and it's been held up in court. They have pretty smart lawyers at HUD. And so I think the fact that they're trying really hard to not be so prescriptive and they're trying really hard to craft something that fits in with case law, like the hope is that even if it is challenged, it would be able to withstand. After the break, we get existential. Can we policy our way out of racism? Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. 
Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. We're back with the weeds. So we've been talking about what the enforcement of the new Biden rules would mean for the Fair Housing Act. But I can't help but think about when Brown versus the Board of Education went through and the amount of white families that just left public school altogether and went to private schools because they didn't want to integrate. With these new housing rules, is there a way for communities to opt out of these rules in the Fair Housing Act? Something we've seen in Congress occasionally proposing funding streams, they say like, okay, if you loosen your zoning rules, you could be eligible for this new money. And there's a sense that that might not be that effective because people rather, as you sort of are getting at, like rather keep their segregated communities than take this like additional funding stream that they probably need. I think there's a sense, kind of a hope that this HUD funding would be a different story because this wouldn't be new funding. This would be like the crucial money that this that these communities depend on. Up until now, a lot of communities have just said like, we're going to say we're doing this and not actually do it and we'll still get the money. If HUD is serious about cutting off money, are there some communities that would say, fine, maybe, but I, I think it would be not an easy call for a lot of people because especially for bigger cities. I I don't really know, though. Like, I think it's kind of an open question because we've never really done it. I guess I imagine a world where, like, if your community is wealthy enough and you really are just, you're like, no, I don't want people who are not like me. And it it goes beyond black and white. Like you said, like, for a long time, like, Jewish people have been redlined. Like, people are discriminated against for their gender and for their sexual orientation and all these things. I. Yeah, I and I guess we have to wait to see if some people are going to say uh, this money is not worth uh, changing the, what my community looks like and who I am in community with. I think part of what that will also entail, and this is, I think, might depend on how the final rule is worded and enforced, but, like, whether these plans are going to be sort of regional versus, like, very local. So, You could have, like, a very wealthy suburb, but if it's part of a larger county that submitted a plan, Mm. then they might have less ability to do that. But you can also imagine a really tiny, like, rural community that has its own thing and and doesn't want to cooperate regionally. I think right now HUD is encouraging regional planning, but to avoid this prescriptive problem, I don't know if they're requiring it. So this next question I have is kind of existential, but is housing the best way to desegregate. I think especially, I mean, you know, this applies to renters as well as homeowners, but fewer and fewer of us own homes. I think especially people around our age, like we are, we are big time renting out here and it it can very much be like, all right, can I get into that apartment? Like, let's like, and will the rent not kill me? Okay, well then that's where I'm going. (sighs) But yeah, is, is housing the way to desegregate? Or, or are there other avenues that maybe we should be concentrating on? So I actually wrote a story about this for the now defunct Pacific Standard Magazine, RIP. <laughs> but there's actually is some really interesting research about how in the school segregation space, which is an area I've like done a lot of writing about, it's really, really common for school district officials or parents or whatever to be like, well, we can't do anything about school segregation because housing is segregated. Uh, don't look at us, you know. But in fact, there's actually these cyclical effects that happen to all the things. So if you work on integrating schools, then that ends up having an effect in housing markets, research is found. And same thing with, like, integrating housing obviously can help integrate schools. So I, I am of the belief that, like, usually if people are saying, well, I can't do anything until they do something, that's generally probably not true and an excuse. I'm sympathetic to the idea that our society just like prioritizes home ownership far and away other things. Jerusalem Demis is such a good piece in The Atlantic, I thought. Um, so good. And she was on The Gray Area oh. recently to talk about it. Oh, Shout yeah. out to our sister shout podcast. Out, shout out to Jerusalem. But I, I think one of the debates in fair housing actually is like some of these communities, some of these like really white, segregated, expensive suburbs have 
apartment bans or they mm-hmm. don't allow low-income housing to be built. And that is arguably a, I mean, besides just being like NIMBY-esque, it helps perpetuate segregation and discriminates against renters. And so there is a world in which all of these things are sort of connected and we could like help fight segregation and NIMBYism by making communities more open and inclusive and, and passing zoning laws that allow for more people to live in there. I think that's a good thing. I'm, I'm, my bias is that is something that we should do while also recognizing lots of people wouldn't never want to move there. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up the NIMBYism because I, I live in Ward 3, which is a predominantly white and wealthy ward. And I go for a lot of walks. Do you live in a building? Yeah, I'm in an apartment building for sure. And I have friends yeah. around in the neighborhood that sublet these condos that a lot of people own because they have gone on to I own a condo. second homes. Yeah. And I go on a lot of walks in my neighborhood. And one thing I see in all the yards are these Black Lives Matter signs. And the only thing I can think so of— I it Very. And the only thing I can think of, like, okay, but, like, where is the policy behind this? Like, do you support, you know, right. building multifamily units? Or, we have such a shortage of multifamily units. It's wild. Does this policy at all address that nimbyism? Is that possible to fight on a federal level? Or is it just, you know, you got to hope and— pray that, you know, hearts and minds change and they finally approve, you know, a multi-family unit so that, like, maybe one day, if you feel like it, you can own a home. I think that even though the even though people balk at, like, federal stuff in housing markets, I think there's definitely more that Congress could and should be doing to push back on, like, NIMBY zoning and help create more housing production in communities that don't want to build to allow that. I think for this rule, what you're asking about is kind of like a big fight right now. I've seen so far in some of the comments and and commentary about the rule of like how much will, how much is fair housing going to be about like taking on communities with restrictive zoning and that are not sort of doing what they say. And I think the best case scenario is that without a rule like this, it's never going to happen because you we've seen that for 55 years that people just say they're going to do stuff and they're not. And so the hope is that this rule will give the federal government the tools to say, like, now you have to. The risk is that it's going to be too vague or too open-ended or they're not going to actually yank the money when push comes to shove um, or they need to spell out more clearly what they mean. So these are some of the questions. And, like, I'm very interested in, like, I hope to, like, scour through them in 60 days, everything that people have tuned in and see what see where we're at. Are there other ways to enshrine these rules? I mean, I mean, I think, and this is the case with so many policies, one administration comes in and they do a thing and then the other administration comes in and rolls it back, but that administration does a thing and then another administration comes in and then we ping pong with policy, I don't know, forever and ever until we all die. And <laughs> our politics are so hyperpartisan that it is difficult to see a way out of that loop. Is there anything that can be done to enshrine these and keep that from happening? Yeah, this is something that I feel like I've been talking about with my editor Libby so much recently because we have been in this era, I feel like the last decade or so, basically, where it feels like progress in Congress is harder than it used to be. And so presidential administrations, there's more pressure on them to kind of use every possible thing with their executive action to deliver change, even if the change is less secure than legislation would be from Congress. And I would say, like, it's really easy to be sympathetic to that because you you want to see some progress. You want to see something happen for your side or, or the goals you care about. But then it's really demoralizing. It can be really frustrating for people to then just every eight years ping pong back and forth. I think the consequences of that have been understated sometimes of like how that could affect organizing, how that could affect lawmakers. So I do worry about that. And I feel like we're seeing that with so many different agencies recently. Um one thing I, I do feel is that there is kind of this idea that, like, oh, nothing can get done in Congress and we can never reach a, 
bipartisan compromises, but there are more bipartisan compromises in 2022 than I think anyone would have expected two years ago. And so I definitely hope that Congress doesn't abandon the idea of coming up with some kind of housing legislation because I think they're much more lasting. Maybe more funding is needed, which Congress can do. And I think I'm with you. I don't want to just like hope that local communities come to the right answer. I think pushing the behind is helpful. <laughs> but um, I, I definitely have some concerns about relying too much on executive actions and rules and stuff. Yeah. And the idea of just things changing every four years, like it is so hard to enact change in four years. I mean, you and I both know if you blink, another election is happening. Like it just, it. you cannot tell me that 2016 was not yesterday. Like it feels very, very quick. Like making that change in four years feels. So I asked a couple of people when I was writing my story, like, do you think this stands a better shot of surviving than Obama era? And like, the hope is that this doesn't kind of spark tons of op-eds in right-wing media and that Ron DeSantis doesn't make this his big issue. Like, I mean, he's, he seems to have some other issues he's he's very hype on, so maybe he won't. Yeah, and- <laughs> there are other, there are AP classes to uh, to get rid of exactly. rather than exactly. fair so, housing. So let's say the Republican candidates are just kind of like busy with other things and then this rule just kind of exists and there's not the same kind of backlash that we saw, there's a much better chance that it might kind of just become general federal bureaucracy of how government works. Um, And that's kind of an open question right now. You mentioned sort of the politics of it all. Does the political will to enshrine this exist? Like, it, it seems like there are lots of different priorities, <laughs> political priorities right now. And I'm just wondering, you know, is there the will for it? I hope so. Um, I think it's similar to what we were just talking about, which is like, if there's a lot of political energy on other issues, sometimes that's actually very helpful because then there's less energy available <laughs> to fight this. And and from what I understand, they designed this rule in a way that's supposed to be like easier for communities to comply, to require less resources to do it, which has its drawbacks too. But They're trying to design a role that's, like, relatively feasible for communities to incorporate into their general government measures. And I certainly worry about backlash, and I worry it won't be strong enough to have an effect. But I don't know. I, I, you know, we're not in 1960s anymore, which is good. Yeah. Um, Yeah. For a variety of reasons. For a variety of reasons. Um, Whether we would see the kind of overt backlash now— uh, I don't know. This this is another kind of existential question. But is it possible for our, for us to legislate our policy our way out of segregation? Like, one thing that looking at history has taught me that if people don't want to do something, they will find every single loophole to not do it. And there are some people who are just like, I do not want a black neighbor. No, thank you. Not doing it. Like, can you legislate that difference? Is it, is this more of like a hearts and minds thing? The thing that came to mind when you were talking about that is in the South, much more than the North, but in the South, as a result of, you know, desegregation and a lot of these court cases is you had a lot more county level school districts. Mm-hmm. And there was a originally backlash and there were busing fights. And I, I, you know, I'm sure the students who attended those first generations of graduating classes had really tough experiences. And not like there's not racism at the schools anymore, but like over time, people just kind of like got used to it. Yeah. And that just suddenly became like Wake County or like uh, South Carolina. There's like sort of all across the South, there are these county level school districts where, you know, kids started going to school together who previously was sort of unimaginable. And there's parts of me that feels like that's definitely possible with housing, too, where, like, if it's the easiest thing, if it's the most affordable thing, if it's near your job, if it feels safe and, like, and you don't have that many options, or maybe you don't want to, like, fight that hard, there will always be, like, some people who, like, are absolutely not, I'm never going to live near a Black person or or I'm never going to, like, settle for this kind of uh, neighbor. But I think a lot of people would be open to it if it's in their self-interest. Mm. And I think that's the hope of designing policy that, like, people decide, oh, this probably is, like, I probably shouldn't fight this or, like, and then over time, you know, the benefits of integration happening. But 
Somebody could easily listen to me and think, Rachel, you're being really naive. You know? <laughs> I know. But I don't know. I I like erring on the side of optimism. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I like I think I think people often conflate optimism and naivety, but no. I think we can do a lot with policy and I feel like there's a lot of things we've done with policy that we a lot of things we haven't yet tried that I feel like we should try, you know? What's really interesting about this, I feel like a lot of times on the weeds we talk about policies that have been implemented. But this is one that has as of yet to, you know, be codified. We've mentioned that it's open for public comment. For folks who are interested in that or learning more as this process goes on, where should they go? There's a link on HUD's website. There's a link in my article. I think there will be a link in the show notes. And so you can just go on and, you know, there's no formal way it has to appear. It can really be sharing you know, your thoughts about what you either think of the rule or what you hope the drafters of the rule keep in mind as they craft their final version. And then afterwards, I think something that is cool about this is they really are trying to build in ways to keep the public involved. So when it goes into effect, your own community is going to start having these public meetings to shape their equity plan. You can submit feedback to that. You can try to show up to those meetings in person. And then if a plan is submitted and approved, then they're going to your community's going to have to start posting updates online about how they're doing to enforce it and you as an individual will be able to comment on that, weigh in on that, file complaints if you think they're not doing enough. Um so this is sort of trying to build in more grassroots oversight and hopefully if you've listened to this episode this long you might want to do that. <laughs> All right. Rachel Cohen, thank you so much for joining us. And we need to have you back on as this, you know, makes its way. Thank you. This is so fun. Thanks for having me. That's all for us today. Thank you to Rachel Cohen for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Christian Ayala engineered this episode. Kim Eggleston fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Quillen Hill. Do you have a policy question you want answered? Don't forget to send us an email or voice memo to weeds at vox.com. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. <laughs> As one does. You As know how, does. like, yeah. you get parties. together... <laughs> You know how you get together to catch up with an old friend and talk about the Fair Housing Act? Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.